if everyone is on the same page, so if the world is totally flat and we all know what one another are doing, we know how I know how you're solving problems and you know how I'm solving problems. And that's true of everyone that you come in contact with. It might be easier to solve problems in the short term because you can kind of access everyone else's innovations and think about how everyone else is solving problems. But in the long term, if everyone converges on one solution to a problem, then the population overall is a little bit worse off because if I come up with a solution and you come up with a different solution, then if we have a harder problem, we have our unique solutions to try to put together and see if they're complementary in a way that helps us solve a bigger or harder problem. And so if groups of people or individuals make independent innovations, they can often be combined to make even better tools or even better innovations later. Recently, I was asked to comment on a paper that I found really fascinating where anthropologists measured a real social network in several groups of hunter-gatherers and showed that if they were all exchanging information, they would solve a problem more slowly than if they were spreading the information according to their actual social networks, which they measured by giving these hunter-gatherer individuals things to wear on their bodies that told them how close they were to other individuals. And it would spread even faster if they were only exchanging ideas with their kin. And so the more that they restricted their social networks, the faster innovations were able to spread. One feature common to nonlinear phenomena is how they challenge intuitions. Maybe nowhere is this more apparent than in studying the evolutionary process, and organisms in which not just genes but learned behaviors reproduce themselves provide a fountain of reliable surprises. Teasing out the intricate dynamics of gene culture coevolution is no easy feat. The dance of language, tools, and rituals together with anatomy reveals a deeper hidden order in how information spreads and offers clues to why some strategies for innovation repeat themselves across the tree of life. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex systems science research center. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world, and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order. Join us for an adventure into complexity. This week's guest is Nicole Crianza, an assistant professor in the biological sciences department at Vanderbilt University, whose research merges computational and theoretical approaches to the comparison of cultural and genetic evolution in both human languages and birdsong. In this episode, we discuss how geography, genetics, behavior, and technology collide in fascinating ways, and how the study of gene-culture interactions might answer some of natural history's greatest riddles. Before we start, we'd like to inform you of upcoming opportunities with SFI. Applications are still open for the 2020 Journalism Fellowship, the Global Sustainability Summer School, a postdoctoral position in scaling theory, and a handful of staff positions here in Santa Fe. Learn more at santafe.edu. For transcripts, show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. There you will find our email address, and we love to hear feedback from you about the show. 
If you enjoy this podcast, please help us reach a wider audience by subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show on social media. Thank you for listening. Nicole Crianza, it's a pleasure to have you on Complexity Podcast. Thank you so much. So I like to start these episodes by inviting guests to talk a little bit about their own uh, intellectual biography, you know, how you came to a passion for science and the study of evolution and how you came to do the work that you're doing. Of course. Um, so I, I think my passion for evolution probably started in ninth grade. Um, and I read my, in biology class, kind of the first, the first inklings that I had about, about evolutionary theory and, and learning about Darwin and learning about how animals um, evolved and plants evolved and immediately wanted to take AP bio as a sophomore and, and just dig in as much as I could. I felt like this was an idea that made everything make sense for me. And so I was an early devotee, I think. And, and that's kind of shaped, I think, how I think about the world around me and, and my interactions with it. So a lot of your work emphasizes the cultural dimensions of evolution. And I think like the right place to start is in the broadest way, looking at the differences that we understand between molecular evolution and cultural evolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are those what significant differences do we observe? Why does observing those differences matter to the study of social organisms in particular? That's a that's super interesting question. I think that's something that I have been interested in, in a really long time, for a really long time, um, thinking about the parallels and, and differences between genetic evolution and the evolution of behavior. Um, and I started out in uh, my PhD, I, I want... I, thought I wanted to, to study animal behavior. And that was one of the things I was looking for when I was looking for graduate school. And, and so I, I ended up studying birds and, um, someone has told me since that there, there are two types of people who watch birds in the wild. And obviously there's lots of types of people. Um, but you can often categorize people into the ones who want to see as many different types of birds as possible and the ones who are content to kind of hide and watch a boring bird just eat and hide its food and, and interact with others. And I, I definitely found myself in that second category, um, boring or not, of you know, and, and who's to call a bird boring, but um, that I really wanted to kind of figure out behavioral patterns and, and think about animals and humans and, and how they behave the way they do and how we think about um, how ideas are transmitted in humans and, and finding the parallels between that and and how animals transmit their behaviors and learn from one another. And so I just kept um, building on these ideas and becoming more and more fascinated by them. So what are some of the important distinctions to be made between, <laughs> say, Mendelian inheritance and mm -hmm. what is popular and popularly understood as like mimetic inheritance following, you know, Dawkins and the selfish gene. Sure. Um, so I think that, that the main difference that's easiest to point to is that as humans and for birds as well, and for, for many other, many, if not most other organisms, we inherit our genes from our parents and we call that vertical transmission. Um, and we can inherit our behaviors or learn our behaviors from many other sources. And so we have not only our parents, but other adults in the population, people our own age, um, teachers who are 
dedicated to transmitting information, for example. And we can also come up with our own ideas. We can innovate. We can change our own minds. Um, so the the number of input sources that we have for behaviors and for culture is is much higher in general. And it's not limited to kind of the time of our inception that we also have our whole lives to acquire traits and behaviors and, and change them. And so there's, there's the potential for so much more complexity, I think, in, in learned behaviors, um, as opposed to Mendelian inheritance, because we have so long and so many sources from which we can um, acquire information. There's, a, there's another uh, dimension to this that you point out in a review that you lead authored for PNAS on cultural evolutionary theory, how culture evolves and why it matters, that um, I like that you know you mentioned that uh, it's possible that children are likely to reject traits like cultural traits mm-hmm. that they might inherit from their parents. And I, I you know I I can't remember who authored this research, but I did see something about. Um, political dispositions oscillating over generations. Yeah, there's a paper that's called something like haircuts and hemlines as well about um, <sighs> about how things that you observe in your parents' generation seeming particularly outdated um, or or worthy of rejection. And and that we certainly inherit lots of ideas from our parents um, as much as you can point to examples of, of rejecting, for example, political beliefs or religious beliefs of your parents. Those things do tend to correlate. We do um, more often than not learn um, some of those types of traits, political beliefs, um, for example, from our parents. And so there's, you see, you can identify both patterns and that kind of very easily anecdotally, you can see that that cultural evolution would be really complex if you have some probability of adopting a belief and some probability of wholeheartedly rejecting it. Um, you know, how do we look at evolutionary patterns then? And then, you know, a lot of your work has emphasized the nonlinear ways in which cultural evolution changes patterns of genetic inheritance also. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we think we think about a couple different ways that that could happen. You know, we all look for certain things in our partners, um, depending on what those what those things are, if they're behaviors um, or beliefs or commitments to, to certain things, then then we narrow the field of people that we're willing to partner with potentially by by cultural factors. And so those can have evolutionary implications. You know, people have realized for a long time that we're that humans are geographically structured, that we're much more likely than not to to partner with someone that we are nearby and that we're likely to be nearby to where our, where we were born kind of over the course of evolutionary history. And so in addition to these geographic patterns, we can also see linguistic patterns. You're, you're more likely to, to um, partner with someone whose, whose language you share. Um, and, and there's other beliefs that, that people and, and behaviors that people, um, we call this assortative mating. Um, and so you can assort on many different types of traits. And then those traits um, can become correlated with genetic evolution. Maybe it seems like the next step is to to start with some of the things that you brought up in the talk that you gave at the Stanford Institute this week on your work in modeling the contact between populations mm-hmm. and uh using uh, the sort of diversity of, of tools and techniques available to different populations uh, and understanding how the cultural repertoire is affected by migration between populations and different kinds of food gathering or production. So like, mm-hmm. um, I guess maybe the right place to start with this 
is this paper that you wrote for the Royal Society Interface, uh, Greater Than the Sum of Its Parts. You wrote, this is uh, mm-hmm. co-authored with Oren Kolodny and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. SFI external professor Marcus Feldman. Um, and it starts with a, a puzzle, which is <laughs> this transition between the, the middle and the upper Paleolithic. And mm-hmm. what archaeologists, or I guess paleoanthropologists... Yeah, both, I think. Yeah, have had a hard time understanding about what they're seeing here. So, like, let's start with that mystery. Are we, and, and you're thinking 50,000 years ago, this one? Yes. So, the um, there's lots of mysteries in the archaeological record. <laughs> yeah. um, so, there's there's a, this, and this does happen, it happened multiple times in, in human history. We, you can point to certain points in human history where there seems to have been a sea change, some some in a relatively narrow time span, things in the in the cultural tool record in particular seem to shift. And there's lots of hypotheses about these um, about these types of transitions. And and one is of course you know a similar one to that Darwin had about the fossil record, which is that if you have a very sparse and imperfect record, you can see patterns that that might not be there. Um, so you can. If you if you only have a dinosaur fossil from every million years, you might think that there was rapid change when there was actually very slow change. And so that's that's certainly one thing that we need to think about with um, the archaeological record of, of human tools is that we we might have biased samples or or incomplete records that could lead us to see patterns that that maybe aren't there. But if we think to ourselves that that the record is representative of human behaviors, then it does seem like there are certain periods of time when things when things have changed in um, relatively rapidly compared to the time period before. And around 50,000 years ago, um, some scholars point to the emergence of art and jewelry and musical instruments and, and a couple things that in addition to an explosion of different types of tools and have sought to explain um, explain this relatively rapid increase in in what seems like human cultural changes. And something that that um, I talked about the other day in the, in the talk is that often um, researchers had pinned these changes on other things that were going on. So either there was a dramatic environmental shift, there was a change in the human brain, there was potentially, um, people have linked this to the emergence of language, that if we could transmit information in a different way, linguistically, that maybe all of these, all of these different types of behaviors could accumulate rapidly, and something that we wanted to think about and push against, just just in terms of thinking, kind of in in the vein of Occam's razor, that is this the is this the simplest explanation that we can think of that an environmental change or human cognitive change caused this big shift? And so, our hypothesis in in making this model and is um, is that human culture itself could change the parameters of its own evolution. And so we can, um, if we think about populations coming into contact with one another that have different sets of traits, different sets of tools, if they can, if they can combine those tools and, and make plenty of new things that maybe, um, kind of an increase in either human population size or in human movements, um, could have led to an explosion of tools without having to invoke a cognitive, genetic, or environmental process. That we we can come up with other hypotheses, but the idea was: can we think of just a purely cultural process that would lead to some of those patterns, um, or do we need to invoke something external? And so, the the 
point of the model um, was mostly to, to give this other null hypothesis. So there's a couple really interesting features of, of this model, to, to me anyway. One, one is that you account for the way that these interactions might change the rate at which certain cultural innovations are forgotten. Yeah. And, you know, like uh, other, you know, many people, including Brian Arthur, have put forward models of the evolution of technology in which mm-hmm. uh, nothing is really lost, you know, that we kind of maintain. But that seems to be biased toward recent history. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I'd love to hear you talk about that and how you see, uh, you know, what your model shows about the way that uh, technological advancements are stabilized by this kind of mixing. Yeah, there's a couple different things that we propose, and and so as a as a background, a lot um, there have been um, anthropological and archaeological studies of cultures that seem to point to the fact that tools can be lost even when they're useful, and it's unknown kind of the processes. We have a lot of hypotheses because the it's hard we can't go back in time and and ask people, why did you stop fishing? Or, um, you know, how did you, why aren't you making this tool anymore? Um, And so some of these hypotheses have to do with the rate of spontaneous loss and and particularly how it relates to population size. So there's a very influential model um, from 2004 by Joe Henrik that postulates that a population size is related to the rate of loss of cultural tools. Say that, that you're trying to make a needle to sew clothes and there's a person in the population that you've identified as the best person at making needles, you would seek out that person and attempt to learn their techniques. And that on average, um, you're likely to do maybe a little bit worse than that, than she did the best person. Um, so you've picked a model, you've tried to imitate it and you've come pretty close maybe, but not to the level of proficiency of the master. But that if say a thousand people tried to learn that technique, a couple of them might make an even better needle. They might kind of figure out a technique that was a little bit better. And so if you had a large population, every generation, your best model might get a little bit better. And then over the course of, of time, the average proficiency of that trait might shift upwards. Whereas if you have a very small population, just due to the sampling of that space of proficiency, maybe your average best model would decrease in proficiency over time. And so this was one mechanism by which population size could be related to the loss of tools. And so one of the things that we think about in in that paper is then if you have multiple groups of individuals, if this process is going on or if other processes are going on, they might not have all lost the same set of tools. So if people are communicating with each other, if they're migrating, if they're contacting each other, tools on average might be slower to be lost because they can be either reintroduced or a substitute for them could be introduced from another population. And so um, that isolation kind of also might lead to cultural losses that could be that could be kind of reseeded if you if you have contact with their populations. And we also postulate in in that paper and another one that things like writing systems or oral histories could preserve cultural traits as well. That even if the model isn't, if your best model of, of making that tool isn't as good as it used to be, but someone wrote down some information before, then you might have um, a better chance of preserving that, that cultural, um, cultural process. You're talking about lucky leaps. Yeah. And the, um, and that if, if you invent something like a writing system that, that people might, or a drawing system or an oral history that you've kind of preserved 
even if you get in a situation where only a few people were making um, some big innovation, only a few people were specialized in making a net or making an arrowhead or making you know something else, if people had written about it or drawn it, then maybe it's less likely to be to be lost or forgotten. One thing that is really cool about this is that you're running multiple simulations, like you're talking about different populations of people, yeah. and then you're blending them at different rates. So there's, right. there's infrequent or rare migration, and then frequent migration, mm-hmm. and the, the rate at which cultural interchange is happening has pretty profound effects on not just the retention of innovations, but mm-hmm. the accumulation of these sort of ratcheting innovations that maintain a, a memory or a history. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons that we um, called the paper greater than the sum of its parts was that if two populations are having very regular contact with one another, um, that they could potentially have a maintain a cultural repertoire that was greater than um, either of them would have independently or that a population of both their sizes added together would have that you could you could potentially at least um, figure out you know you can you can design a simulation in which um, people are continually combining each other's tools and and looking to one another for innovations and kind of maintaining a culture repertoire that's that's larger than um, than either would be on its own and so this is a theoretical thing this is something that happens in the simulation um, but it's the idea is that if you make a certain set of relatively simple adu- um, assumptions about how how cultural traits could mix when two groups of people come together, um, you can you can make some of these different predictions about how the um, cultural repertoire would change when the the populations are contacting with one another versus when they're isolated from one another. So there's a nuance here that it feels important to make explicit, which is like you said, isolated populations might or infrequently associated populations might lose different technologies. And so mm-hmm. there's it's more of an island thing where they're gonna kind of drift off in different directions. But the more they're in contact with one another, um, the more their uh, mutual understanding, mm-hmm. you know, their shared toolkit base overlaps. And so this seems related pretty importantly to conversations about globalization and the way that we are seeing at one scale, a loss of the like local bookstores, um, you know, regional Mm -hmm. dialects, Mm -hmm. this kind of thing. Um, But on the other hand, as a species collectively, we're innovating at this completely insane, seemingly unprecedented rate. And And I'm curious to hear you expand a bit on on mm-hmm. that and like how you weigh these you know this it, what is in one sense a loss of cultural complexity and um or like cultural uniqueness yeah with a, an overall uh, global gain yeah it's this is a super fascinating topic and i think that um our models have, have tried to think about this a little bit or tried to expand on this and but i think that there's also a lot of really interesting work that's that's coming out in um, both in laboratory experiments and in anthropological experiments, and um, that, and a lot of it shows that something that, that something that people call partial connectivity is actually the the best thing for um, increasing innovations and finding optimal solutions to problems. And so, this is a really interesting concepts and 
actually Max Durex and Rob Boyd, who's external faculty here, um, have thought about this a lot, that if everyone is on the same page, so if there's if it, the world is totally flat and we all know what one another are doing, we know how, I know how you're solving problems and you know how I'm solving problems and that's true of everyone that you come in contact with, it might be easier to solve problems in the short term because you can kind of access everyone else's innovations and and think about how everyone else is solving problems. But in the long term, if everyone converges on one solution to a problem, then the population overall is a little bit worse off. Because if I come up with a solution and you come up with a different solution, then if we have a harder problem, we have our unique solutions to try to put together and see if they're complementary in a way that helps us solve a bigger or harder problem. And so if groups of people or individuals um, make independent innovations, they can often be combined to make even better tools or even better innovations later. Recently, I was asked to comment on a paper that I found really fascinating where anthropologists measured a real social network in a, in a several groups of hunter-gatherers and showed that if they were all exchanging information, a trait would spread innovation. They would solve a problem more slowly than if they were spreading the um, information according to their actual social networks, which they measured by giving these hunter-gatherer individuals things to wear on their bodies that told them how close they were to other individuals. And it would spread even faster if they were only associating with exchanging ideas with their kin. And so the more that they restricted their social networks, the faster innovations were able to to spread and solve problems. And that's something that we get at a little bit with with our model as well in in that if two groups of of individuals um, are fully connected, if they're part of one population and effectively indistinguishable from one another culturally, that they have a repertoire, some repertoire of traits, but if they evolved, evolved their traits independently and didn't talk to one another and then later came together, they would have many more unique solutions to try when they were trying to figure out a solution to a problem. And so um, this I think is a really interesting thing to keep in mind when we're when we're talking about globalization where i think that diverse groups are great and can and can solve problems really really well and and that um increasing diversity in our perspectives is is really important and so thinking about kind of how um groups of people that that come from a different perspective when they when they come together they have a lot of unique things they can try when they're trying to solve a problem together um i think that's something that we that kind of becomes increasingly interesting and important um, as the as globalization happens. I, I, I want to take this opportunity to link what you just said to work that Albert Cow uh, talked about when he was on the show a couple of weeks mm-hmm, ago, mm-hmm. and the work that he's done on on social decision making and how uh, over correlation can can impact that. And you know, uh, his paper on. Uh, modular decision making and how yeah. you know course graining at the level of the society by you know taking local polls and then feeding them up into a higher level uh-huh. seems to perform better under certain environmental conditions. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I think people are potentially converging on this idea from from multiple perspectives that um, that we don't want to all have the exact same toolkit when we're approaching a problem. You talk about this a little bit. You talk about the Derek and Boyd paper in mm-hmm. that piece, uh, Oanakarja. Uh-huh. And you wrote on the evolutionary advantage of cultural memory mm-hmm. on heterogeneous contact networks. And like specifically, you, you mentioned if subsets of the population worked separately and then compared their solutions, the partially connected network 
uh, in the Derek and Boyd paper, uh, produced a diversity of perspectives that produced often produced better combined results than completely connected populations. And Mm -hmm. so, um, that seems linked to other work that you've written on the, the value, uh, to kind of evangelize here, (laughs) the value of interdisciplinary collaboration, you know, and, and like why it is that we're at a a moment in the history of the practice of science Mm -hmm. where it's, it's no longer adaptive for us to remain siloed and chauvinistic in this regard. Yeah. With some of my colleagues, um, in particular, Orrin Kaladny and Mark Feldman, we organized a workshop that we called um, Bridging Cultural Gaps, Interdisciplinary Approaches to Cultural Evolution. But one of the things that we um, we realized and, and other people have realized also is that the, the study of how humans change over time or how behaviors change is something that isn't that you can approach from lots of different disciplinary backgrounds. I come from an evolutionary biology background, um, but from anthropology and archaeology, this is obviously very relevant, but I think even in fields that we um, potentially collaborate with less often, um, economists or psychologists or cognitive scientists, uh, human behavioral ecologists, that these ideas have similar underpinnings but are often either studied in different ways or called things in different terminologies. And so I think putting people together in a room and having them talk out you know, what did you mean? What do you mean by this? Are you published on this paper? Um, or you studied this system, and you're coming at it from a totally different approach? Um, how do you how does it? How is it relevant? How can we make our work kind of speak the same language? That's been, I think, a source of, of, you know, creativity for for me and for the field to think about how people with different training and different um, kind of fundamental, you know, perceptions or, or ways of studying things, how we can all come together and, and try to learn more about, about behavior, about humans, about evolution. Um, so there's, um, uh, this seems like a good time to segue into the, the paper that you wrote with, uh, Laurel Fogarty yeah. on the niche construction of cultural complexity, interactions between innovations, population size, and the environment. You made a point in talk here and that you unpack in this paper about how there isn't a universal linear relationship between the size of a population and its complexity, and that mm-hmm. this has to do with the the way that we deal with food. Uh, yeah. So I'd love to hear you talk about how this paper answers the like this debate in mm-hmm. in the sciences about the relationship between these things and and how you came about it, like how you went into like attacking that problem. Of course. So Laurel Fogarty and I have been collaborating and and also friends for for a long time now. And we, she had this this idea is originally hers, and 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 we got to write this paper together, which was real a, a real joy. Um, but the the idea that we had had been thinking about and circling around um, was that there are different um, schools of thought when it as you as you mentioned when it comes to the relationship between cultural complexity and population size. If you make some assumptions about about cultural evolution, cultural processes, that you might expect larger populations would have more um, cultural complexity or more tools, a larger cultural repertoire. And smaller populations would not. But in some sense, the proof is in the pudding when you when you survey a population and and you have a set of populations in a certain area and you ask and you try to count how many tools you have 
they have in that population, which is obviously hard. You try to count how many people there are, which is also pretty hard, and then make a, a correlation plot. And so, so very hardworking people have been thinking about this in many different cultures. Um, and they often come to differing conclusions. And this has been a source of, of debate in the field. So one of the, one of the um, early foundational papers in this realm was uh, Michelle Klein and Rob Boyd um, looked at um, fishing populations in, in parts of Oceania and found um, a relationship that the, the larger populations had larger tool repertoires, um, more like more complex um, technologies, but people have gone to other, other places and not found that relationship. And so one of the things that, that came out of that was, was a debate that I, you found this relationship, but I didn't. So it can't be universal. It can't be something that we um, talk about as, you know, or make as an assumption of human culture. And that's, I think that's a a fair point. Um, But from studying niche construction, um, which we've um, Laurel Fogarty and I had both been had been thinking about to both together and separately, um, which is the process by which humans can alter their environment and thus alter their evolution. Um, that maybe there was something related to the human interaction with the environment that might be related to this. And so, when we, we put together a, all of the studies that we could find that had tried to make an association between human population sizes and cultural complexity. And we saw a pretty stark pattern, which is that when um, people had surveyed hunter-gatherer populations or other food-gathering populations, they mostly did not find a relationship between population size and cultural complexity. But if they surveyed um, food-producing societies, so either agricultural societies, modern societies, other ways of producing food, they found this correlation between population size and cultural complexity. And so then our hypothesis was that maybe... If, if we're saying, well, some populations show this and some don't, so it isn't a pattern, that maybe something that could explain the pattern is that humans that alter their environments um, use their cultural tools or their technologies to modify environments in a way that produces food. So agriculture is a, is a canonical example. Um, that maybe those populations have a, there's a different relationship between population size and cultural complexity than there'd be in a hunter-gatherer population. And one of the, there's, different hypotheses that we could think about um, that would link those ideas. One of which is that maybe populations that modify their environment to produce food um, are buffered in some sense against environmental changes. Whereas a hunter-gatherer population, if there's a severe drought or other environmental change, the tools that they had been using might no longer be useful in in the environment. So if there's a, a big foliage change or say they move to a new location, maybe their tool repertoire is no longer um, well suited to their environment. And so they, instead of maintaining those tools, they, they come up with new ones. And so their um, tool repertoire would then be associated with environmental fluctuations and less so with their population sizes. Whereas if you have a population that is sedentary, um, is modifying the environment, that even if there's some environmental changes, they would still use the same tool repertoire to do their farming um, and they'd build on that potentially. And so it's not necessarily the um, be all end all of this debate, but it's one way of thinking about, you know, we know humans are complex. We know they have complex relationships with the environment. Does that weigh in at all on the relationships between culture and the people that have that culture? Yeah. So there's a couple different dimensions to this model that seem like important dimensions to differentiate. 
one is the the harshness of the environment mm-hmm. and then one is its variability like the rate the rate at which things are changing mm-hmm. and the effect that the interplay between those two variables have on the the rate of innovation and mm-hmm. you know reading about this and and then you know the the relationship between those things and population size you mentioned that when the effect of the environment on survival and the rate of innovation is strong the effect of population size is, is more complex. It depends crucially on how fast the environment is, is changing. And I'm reminded mm-hmm. of Jessica Flack's work on collective computation. And um, in her community lecture and uh, some of her recent writing, she's pointed to the way that if you think of human societies as processing a collective computation, that we are at the level of the society encoding these coarse grain details about the environment, but that that process breaks down when the environment is changing too rapidly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'd love to hear you talk about the thresholds at which these different strategies emerge. And you touched on this just a moment ago, mm-hmm, but like, mm-hmm. please go into more detail about what makes a difference in terms of the strategies for, you know, the kind of sort of pastoral environment that we're used to thinking about in terms of human history mm-hmm. and the insanity that we have been living through as a species for the, like the last 150 years. Yeah, I think that um, it's interesting because there's different there's different ways or different senses in which our environments can be. And the main correlate of that in the models that that we've done is how many problems are there for you to solve. And so, you know, in some sense in modern society, we've buffered ourselves against a lot of environmental changes. Like it can, you can exist in a place that's, you know, indoors, that's 72 degrees all the time and you always have access to food, but we do have this other aspect of harshness where there's, we do have a lot of problems to solve. We have a lot of things that, that we can improve upon in our lives and we have potentially the resources to do that. And so, so yeah, this proxy for how harsh your environment is, is a really interesting scale because if you're, um, if you're living outside environmental harshness or the number of problems that you have to solve that in your environment might mean something very different than if you're in, in a, in a more modern situation. And so I think that but the and but the we if we think about then environmental change, those two those two groups are in very different circumstances. So we can, in a modern society, in this building, in the apartments we live in, in the houses, we can buffer ourselves against environmental change reasonably well up to you know the point where it impacts our food sources or, or impacts our communication with one another. But if you are hunting and gathering and, and living outside, large environmental fluctuations can have a, a big impact on how you live and how you feed yourself and, and whether or not you're migrating. And so um, so I think that these things, we can we can think of them in numerous senses, and I think they're all relevant to, to humans. Whether or not we have constructed stable niches for ourselves at the level of like air conditioning, yeah, uh, there's, I think, a, a common misperception that we've somehow ended natural selection, yeah. when in fact, it seems like natural selection is just operating at a different time scale or a different level of organization than it than it once mm-hmm. did. Potentially, different, yeah. Di- different dimensions. That's right. I think we've altered our own evolution for sure, but but the ways that that would affect the long term human populations is not not totally clear. And I think for cultural evolution, um, we've certainly, you know, 
we certainly haven't stopped kind of the natural selection or drift or any other evolutionary process on cultural evolution. The culture, our culture is still changing quite fast. Um, and a recent topic that I've been thinking about with one of my collaborators, Orin Kalani, is um, is something that we're thinking of in terms of is necessity or opportunity the mother of invention. So there's this this phrase, necessity is the mother of innovation, um, or necessity is necessity is the mother of invention, that we point to to think about when would we make a new solution to a problem and it's probably maybe it's when we need to that that if we need something that isn't there we figure out a way to to solve that problem but you can think of this both in in a traditional context of of humans interacting with their environment and also in a modern context if we are kind of operating at our capacity for things we can handle maybe we don't really have the time to to solve that problem and so in some sense, maybe opportunity is the mother of invention. That if I have the leisure time, you know, I had this wonderful week at the Santa Fe Institute, I could potentially have let my thoughts drift to, th- to problems that I wouldn't solve if I was completely overbooked um, every single day. This is why Johann Sebastian Bach wrote like over a thousand works of music and his wife did not, right? Raising all those kids. That's that's an opportunity is the mother of invention. Yeah. And and she probably made a lot of, of innovations in, in child rearing. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we can think about, um, yeah, we, we can think about some of the modern luxuries we have where we don't have to deal with raising our own food or regulating the temperature around us, or, you know, we can keep lights on later into the night and, and, but there's probably some balance there, right? That there's some interplay between needing to desperately needing to solve problems and having the time to actually do it. And so, you know, kind of where, where are humans right now in that, in, on that spectrum and, and how can we think about the kind of larger problems that cultural cultural innovations might help us with and giving ourselves the space to solve them. So uh, to to link this back to the paper on the evolutionary advantage of cultural memory and heterogeneous contact networks, you emphasize in that paper the way that network structure can support or mm-hmm. suppress innovation and variance. And I was left reading this paper that we're just discussing now with this question about this difference between hunter-gatherer societies and agricultural societies seems like it's taken a new shape in the modern era and that it's not just about food production. It's about the production and supply chains of all different kinds of things, including, you know, commercial goods and knowledge. And so, you know, it seems like when we're talking about the instability of the environment, that there are ways in which there's a complex interplay. Like we're not just talking about foraging foods. Now we're talking about countries that depend on other countries for manufacturing basic goods and services. And like what happens if Mm -hmm. China stops shipping things to the United States because of the coronavirus? like when those networks break down, Mm -hmm. then, you know, I mean, people have been warning about this for decades about the danger of food deserts in our metropolitan areas and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how this research might translate to insights into the way that a global economy might be affected by the sudden introduction of the you know a new structure in the networks of how we're actually like relaying goods and services and information. Yeah, that's a tough one. I think a lot of a lot of the solution to that type of problem depends on on how long the how long the disruption lasts. And so 
the one thing that our models might predict is that if there's a long-term disruption or cultural networks, we might not be able to and bounce back in quite the same way. And so part of that, I think, is just what you're saying, that we would have to solve some problems that we wouldn't have to solve before. Like if we couldn't go to the grocery store and buy food, we would have a urgent necessity that we would that we would need to to figure out. And so depending on our, our solution to that would probably depend on on how long it lasted. And then whether we then in a kind of disconnected social network, we would innovate our own solutions and hopefully figure out ways to survive and persist, which humans are quite good at doing. But I think it wouldn't, it would take very, very short amount of time before you realize that some of the knowledge you thought you had at your fingertips isn't there anymore and that you're forced to solve problems that that you know you could have the answer to if you had if your if your network connections still existed. And so I think that's something that would put modern humans in in a bit of a, a tough spot, I think. To get kind of maybe morbid about this, there's a silver lining in this, which was that after however long that period of disruption might be, mm-hmm. then we will have pioneered all of these unique solutions to these problems. And maybe that kind of global disruption might actually kick us off of the local optimum that we're stuck on because of the homogeneity of, of the global economy as it is. Yeah, I think the models would predict that. And that would be my hope as well. But I, and so I'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed <laughs> for that for that outcome. So I want to move to, you've done about as much work on birds as you have on humans. And I think the analogies that emerge from looking at these two strains of your work stereoscopically are really interesting. So I would like to have you talk about your work with Laurel Fogarty and Marcus Feldman on cultural niche construction of song repertoire size and learning strategies in songbirds and how it seems like there is sort of very similar insights to the way that different cultures come together and, and mix and learn from one another and the repertoire of, of tools that they have available to them and a set of similar evolutionary pressures on why certain songbird species might have a larger or smaller song repertoires. Yeah, I, this is something that I've felt very lucky to think to study and think about because it's it's endlessly fascinating for me to think about why birds sound the way they do. Um, and so my students and I have been approaching this from a number of different perspectives. Um, kind of some of those are based on on that the work that I did with Laura Fogarty and Mark Feldman on this. And the the general idea that we were thinking about is that when I started to study birds, I I found really, really interesting was that birds have different species of birds have very different songs and the songbirds um the austin songbirds are a clade of birds that are that share a common ancestor somewhere in that lineage they they evolved the ability to learn to sing like you mentioned with a cultural ratchet it doesn't appear that they've that any lineages of this in this clade have lost the ability to to learn to sing and so so we have several thousand species of songbirds um, with a with a common ancestor tens of millions of years ago and the cultural evolution of their song has been has been going on and um, ever since and so we have millions of years of cultural evolution that we can study if we can figure out how to parse and analyze bird songs and think about their long-term evolutionary history and so the something that popped out to me as as being really fascinating is that some birds can 
learn to sing when they're juveniles. They learn a song from an adult potentially in the population. And then when sexual maturity hits, the ability to learn the, the window of song learning closes. They have a sensitive period. And after that, they can't learn more or modify their song. So they have this finite time period where they can learn and modify their their cultural repertoire, and then that's it. And there are lots of other species of birds and several, if not many, in independent evolutionary events have led to um, lineages of birds that can modify their songs sometimes throughout their lives. So we, we can think about mimics and mockingbirds, for example, that that learn to sing and they can modify and, and mimic modify, modify that song and mimic other birds in the environment for the rest of their lives. And so this is a very different learning strategy. In humans, we learn languages best before puberty. After puberty, we can learn languages, but it's kind of a textbook way of learning and, and much less like an absorbing from our environment way of learning. And so we ha- we're thought to have a sensitive period for language learning, but then something like tool making, you might preferentially do later in life and and we have the window of different types of learning is is kind of different lengths in humans. And so I saw this opportunity to think about those two different strategies. You have a strategy and it's not a strategy that you opt in or opt out of as a bird. It's a strategy you're, you're born with, but your strategy is either to learn your song early in life and have that song for the rest of your life or to be able to modify a song um, that you have for the rest of your life. And you would, you might think to yourself, that if birds can modify their songs for the rest of their life, why wouldn't all birds just retain that ability? Why would that ability ever get lost in evolutionary history? Because it seems adaptive. It seems like if you're not doing very well with your song in attracting a mate, it'd be great to sing a different song and, and try again. And if you, so if you're, if you're a bird that sings a very simple song and it's unsuccessful in attracting a mate or defending a territory, you would have a second chance and that that fitness benefit might be great. And so the thought process in the field was that maybe the ability to learn throughout your life is costly in some way. And that would explain why it would get lost unless it's critical to, for the bird's you know reproduction or fitness. And so what we, what we thought about in this is that in that paper is that if there's sexual selection for large song repertoires, that that might be enough to kind of offset the cost of learning um, throughout your life. So if there's some kind of cognitive or metabolic cost of continuing to learn, that that paying that cost wouldn't be worth it if the female that you're trying to attract is, is listening for a short and species-specific sequence. But if the female that you're trying to attract is listening for to maximize complexity, then maybe it's worth paying that cost to have longer to learn, have a more complex song. And so that interplay after that paper, which is a computational theoretical paper, we looked in real birds and found um, a similar a similar trend that birds, yeah, that's the paper. <laughs> um, that if we, when we looked at bird species where people had found a correlation between song complexity or repertoire size and reproductive success. So for some species, um, there's the birds that sing the, the most elaborate songs have the most mates or leave the most offspring, that those tended to be the same species of birds that already had large repertoires. And so this is something that we could think about. Um, we thought about in that paper in terms of 
predictions you might make with other sexual selection signals like a peacock's tail. So birds, um, there are some birds that have really long tails and, and canonically this is thought of as a sexual selection signal that females that are looking for mates would look at the birds with the longest and most beautiful tails and say, you know, they had to evade predators and find food their whole lives while maintaining this beautiful tail. They must be pretty good at stuff. They must be pretty successful. And so we can think about that in the same way with songs, that that if we're thinking about which bird species would have sexual selection that rewarded very complex and elaborate repertoires, at the species level, we would look for birds that that had those elaborate songs, and then that within those species, the individual variation correlates with fitness or reproductive success. Tie this to hypothetical work that I was just talking about with your husband before we started this conversation. <laughs> Richard Doyle at Penn State, his book, Darwin's Pharmacy, where he puts together this argument that human language emerged out of a similar process uh, of sexual selection for eloquence. And that um, it's related to, you know, you cite in your work, Robert Lachlan and, and Peter Slater's work on the cultural trap. And mm-hmm. I'm curious whether you think that this is a fair analogy or under what conditions you see the complexity of the songbird repertoire and also the open-ended, you know, extensive period of mm-hmm. learning, hearing, because it seems it remains kind of uh, unresolved in human evolution, but it is a, a compelling argument that it was the complexity of human communities and this sort of growing burden on us to be able to describe more and more intricate phenomena mm-hmm. that l- led to this this ratchet in which we became more intelligent as we became more social and then that our ability to communicate and express ourselves eloquently mm-hmm. became more and more important. So, you know, do you think something similar is going on um, in songbirds and and if not what factors are selecting for these larger repertoires like it seems yeah. like it would be different than just a long shiny pretty tail. Yeah, I think it's I think this is an interesting domain that we to potentially compare humans and birds and I think we have to do so with obviously a large grain of salt but so something that that I some I've, I haven't read the work that you cite which I which I would love to it seems really really relevant and interesting but I've I've read some work that and I think that Dietrich Stout and and Kevin Leyland has also done done some work on this. Like, how do we transmit something like a stone tool? So we find these in the archaeological record. We find pieces of stone that clearly had a purpose. They were, you know, they could scrape things and and cut things. And so we we have an idea of their function based on their structure. But but what wasn't really known is how can how do, what does it take. For if I knew how to do this, what would it take for me to to share that knowledge with you? Could you look at this stone and then ma- and say, "Ooh, that'd be good for cutting," and make yourself one, or would you need a, an apprenticeship? And so, what Kevin Leyland's group found, I think, was that these types of tools were dramatically easier to transmit with language than without. That just showing somebody and miming something, even if you knew how to do it, it was it was much more difficult to pick up the nuance than if you could explain in words what you were doing and why. And Dietrich Stout's group, I think, found that it took many, many, many hours, 100 hours of training and practice to produce one of these stone tools. And so these are even things that are pretty early in the in human cultural repertoire. And so with the caveat that now that we're good at explaining things in words, maybe we're lean on that a lot. It does seem that 
human communication and human culture co-evolved and potentially facilitated each other's evolution. And so that's that's something that we can we can think about in, with birds because I think the bird songs are often anecdotally compared to both human languages and human music that they're communicating. It's a vocalization. It's a learned vocalization. And so the parallels between um, both speaking and singing are kind of readily apparent. But recently I've been working with my postdoc, Emily Hudson, on this idea that what if a bird song is actually more like an arrowhead than it is like a, like a language? Like what if they, um, if, if the purpose of, or the function of song is more like a tool than it is like a communication behavior that it, and and so thinking about the way that that these that songs develop and and whether they are measured by their complexity or by their performance metrics how fast i can sing um, how how stereotyped i can sing or how complex i can sing at least now that isn't exactly how we're measuring each other in terms of our linguistic capabilities. We're trying to convey information. And so, so yeah, I think there's lots of, of parallels between bird songs and, and human culture and the way that they're learned and the way that they evolve. I think there's a lot of parallels, but it's been interesting to try to really tease apart. Okay. If we're thinking about a cultural, a human cultural analog of bird songs, we can make a case for a number of different types of tools or a number of different types of human behaviors and which one of those is really the most relevant in which circumstance. And so it might be different if we're thinking about a bird that has a complex song versus a bird that has a very simple song that it needs to sing as fast as possible or as regularly as possible. So that's where, you know, this other angle to this comes in, it seems, with respect to what I remember from reading the Lachlan and Slater work on the cultural trap, like, 15 years ago (laughs) was that the heterogeneity of the environment in which these birds live plays a big part and how far a bird that maybe only nests in one tree has to go to find another tree of the same species. And that, you know, there's something about having to learn a wider range of dialects Mm -hmm. or, you know, or something that, Mm -hmm. that ties kind of loosely into these concerns that we've been talking about pretty much this whole time about the amount of variability in the environment. And I don't know, there's, there's this link between, you know, when I think about, again, like in humans, the amount of education as our society has gotten more complex, as we're living, you know, we're spending more years in school, we're traveling further away Mm -hmm. to, you know, to move, we're we're living in different cities than our parents, we're having Mm -hmm. to learn entirely different customs. And so it seems like what qualifies as an adult is now twice the age that it was, you know, say 200 years ago. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on geographic range and environmental heterogeneity in Mm -hmm. these kinds of concerns and how that's figured into your thinking. Yeah, I think that for both humans and birds, I think there's interesting things that we can think about in terms of geographic range, as you mentioned, and also kind of environmental flexibility, like the number of environments you've been exposed to, whether you're a specialist in your environment or a generalist. This is something that people have thought about for a long time with birds that have dialects. Um, so there's there's lots of species of birds where the 
the birds in one particular region sing something very similar to one another. And if you go to a slightly different, you, know, you can go a couple miles over and the birds sound very different. Um, and they've structured themselves by these dialects. Peter Marler, I think uh, I've heard that he used to say that you could drop him blindfolded in the Bay Area of California and he would know where he was based on the white crown sparrow dialect. Huh. He had mapped these out and was very in tune to them. Um, and so they were really geographically structured and, and geographically informative. So then the idea that kind of naturally grew out of that observation of, of song dialects was that the birds that sung a certain dialect would, if they would know that the one another um, were well adapted to that environment, that if you've grown up there, you in human dialects are, are potentially a little bit like this, that you, you can recognize who grew up near you. And then, you know, you have a set of common experiences and you know, you're adapted to the same environment. And what that would predict genetically is that, you might choose a mate that shares your dialect because you know that that your then your mate would be well adapted to the same environment and so would your offspring. And so the idea with song dialects was that they they would potentially then correspond to genetic groupings um, that you'd be more closely related to individuals with your own dialect than other dialects. And people started to study this and sample sparrows in particular from from different dialects and compare their genetic variation. And it's actually somewhat analogous to the human cultural complexity literature where some people found it and some people didn't depending on the bird and the species that they were studying and sometimes even the subspecies like within the white crown sparrows there were links between dialects and genetic clusters in some groups and not others and so then we're left with this kind of burning question of when when is being adapted to your environment, something that would be beneficial for you to look for in a mate versus someone who has a different set of experiences and, and is potentially more flexible. And so I think, you know, birds and humans are both, are both, you know, we're maybe thinking about the same things when we, when we think about, you know, the, the individuals that we associate with and the individuals that we, that we come in contact with and learn from, if they have our same environment, then we know that that their that their information might be useful to us in our current context, but if we if we have someone that we're learning from from a different environment, then maybe what that does is kind of buffers us so that we're our information is useful in more contexts. And so, for both bird songs and and human behaviors and and cultural repertoire, I think there's there's some kind of trade off there, and and we probably are all best suited doing some some mix of in our learning of of seeking out information that's relevant in our current context and information that would be relevant if we if we spread our spread our wings a little bit nice yeah that that seems related to you know one of the strains that that is constantly plucked around here including you know work by Scott Page on diversity in work teams mm-hmm. and how the larger our context functionally that we inhabit mm-hmm. as as social creatures the more it does seem to select for these again like you, you mentioned in this paper i keep coming back to the ability to retain a kind of a cultural memory like hedge your bets yeah yeah so i, mean, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground here. yeah me too i think that yeah i think the um you could sum up by saying probably both humans and birds hedge their bets as much as they can and that the more you can learn and the more flexible your learning is, the kind of the, the better you might be at, at hedging your bets and that that's probably an adaptive strategy. So So for you, what remains the one of the greatest unsolved questions in this domain? Like, you know, what do you what do you imagine you're gonna be, you know, <laughs> keep what's gonna be keeping you up at night for the next few years, probably? Um 
I think oh, there's a lot, but in in the bird space, I think um, this this idea of cultural evolution on kind of the multi-million year time scale is is certainly something keeping me up at night. So it's something that that my lab is doing and my students are bravely forging new ground in is looking at bird songs that have been recorded around the world and deposited into citizen science databases and trying to extract information from those and saying, okay, we have hundreds of thousands of songs that people have wonderfully recorded and submitted to online databases. There's, there seems like there's so much to learn about evolution from that resource. And so we've been building computational tools and graphical user interfaces to to extract information from the bird song. And then we are trying to map that information back onto phylogenies and think about does the evolutionary history of the bird, if we look at kind of the evolutionary history of bird species, and then we look at their songs, what can we learn about how behavior evolves over time? And so thinking about the evolutionary constraints that might affect how a bird sings, in addition to all the problems a bird has to solve, you know, their voices might sound differently if they are huge versus very tiny, if they learn for a long time versus not very long, if they're in a dense foliage versus in in the in the prairie. And so and and then layered on top of that are the cultural pressures, the you know, sexual selection preferences and the both kind of male male and male female interactions that they're having. And so thinking about all of the different evolutionary pressures on this learned behavior over time and space, what can we learn about how behaviors evolve over millions of years? I think that's that's been it's a big it's a big question, but it's the one that's been been really keeping me up at night for a long time. Certainly a, a more difficult question than why birds maybe it's not a more <laughs> difficult question than why birds seem to be subject to some of the same evolutionary ratchets but have not yet achieved uh, or may not be able to achieve uh, a cumulative culture. Yeah, why humans are so good at cumulative culture and other species are not or maybe they're better at hiding it from us, but but it is a really interesting question. And I think that that thinking about social networks, cultural migrations, move, people moving from place to place and how does how do the analogies that we can draw from that and from our modeling and, and experiments on that, how can we think about then other animal behaviors is, is something that we're still working on too. Not just the thumbs. <laughs> well, Nicole, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the talk, which we'll link to in the show notes. It's up on the SFI YouTube and, and we'll link to all the research papers that we discussed here. Thank you so um, much. This has been a blast. Where would you send people who are, for whatever reason, unable to access the show notes? NicoleCrianza.com and CrianzaLab.com is a, a website that my students put together that's been really, really fun. And Google Scholar, anywhere you want to reach me, feel free. Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.